The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, we're talking to the Clean Coder himself, Uncle Bob. Bob, how are things going these days? Well, uh... <laughs> Hunkered down, self-sheltering, social distancing, you know, all of that kind of thing. You and I and, and the folks listening are all probably in that very lucky situation where we can continue to work from home, at least most of us. Yep. The technology that we have created and supported and now use is kind of a lifeline. Imagine this uh, 50 years ago. It would be a very different story. As bad as it is, it would be yep. much, much worse. Yeah, absolutely. I'll try not to breathe too hard on the microphone. And yeah, get you sick. Yeah. viruses can come right through the wires. Internet will transport. That's the internet transport protocol, right? The virus transport protocol, VTP. Okay. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So uh, I asked you what you wanted to talk about today, and you said the Scribe's Oath. Yes, that's correct. I, w- I went out there and I looked up Scribe's Oath because I'm thinking I have to know what this is, right? <laughs> and I'll admit, I, I, you know, I had I had probably seen it before, but yeah, it it turns out that uh, everybody that talks about it talks about you talking about it. So is this something <laughs> you came up with, or? It is some time ago. It was uh, back in in 2015. I wrote a blog. Uh-huh. And the blog is called The Programmer's Oath. And I, I do talks on it. And the talk is entitled The Scribe's Oath because I, I make a reference to the ancient scribes and the way that they, uh, they led their communities, the way we sort of lead ours. But what I wanted to talk about was The Programmer's Oath. There's, there's nine points on this. Uh-huh. I thought it'd be good to just walk through them one at a time. And, and as a preface, we in the software community do not have a a fixed set of ethics that we adhere to. You know, right. what what are the ethics that we we ascribe to? And we don't really have one. We're not taught one. Mm-hmm. And that's that's becoming problematic as software becomes more and more integral into our society. Yep. So way back in 2015, I proposed an oath, which was a just a set of ethics. It's a, an ethical statement. It seems to me that most programmers would immediately agree with it, but maybe not. But I thought I'd throw it out there as a um, as a suggestion, and then we can discuss it further and maybe refine it. Sounds good to me. Um, I guess we're going to start at the beginning. At the beginning. So the uh, the oath is located at um, blog.cleancoder.com, and then you can just scroll down to you see the the programmer's oath in case you wanted to follow along. And I'll put a link in the show notes too. What's that? I'll put a link in the show notes too. Just oh, so okay, good. All right. And so it starts out this way. 
a little bit of formal language. In order to defend and preserve the honor of the profession of computer programmers, comma, I promise that to the best of my ability and judgment, colon, (laughs) and then there are nine points. And the first point comes right out of the Hippocratic Oath. I will not produce harmful code. Now, what what does that mean? What is harmful code? And and I, I thought about this for a long time, trying to trying to make this similar somehow to the Hippocratic Oath. And it seems what to me- this means is that there's no way I'm gonna adhere to this all the time. Because <laughs> because we all produce harmful code, right? I'm not gonna deliberately produce harmful code, but <laughs> well that so there it is, right? It's the to the best of my ability and judgment. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So how do we classify harmful code? And there's, there's the obvious way, which is to say that it does harm to other people. Uh, so, for example, the guys at Volkswagen who, who wrote the code that cheated the California EPA testing equipment, that was harmful code. And it was intentionally harmful code. Right. And, and those guys deserve to be in jail. And I believe some of them are in jail at this point. And so yeah. that's that's one aspect of harmful code. When when you write code to intentionally harm or defraud or cheat or lie. Right. But there's another kind of harmful code that is a little less obvious than that. And that's the harm that you do to your fellow programmers when you write code that is difficult for them to maintain and support. And this happens very frequently as mm-hmm. well. As programmers who are under schedule pressure choose to write code that they know is going to be difficult for others to maintain. And they do so with uh, with the excuse that somehow or another, this is going to make them go faster. Now, I, I think I've made the point many, many times that writing messy code doesn't make you go faster. It makes you go slower. But the the excuse still seems to survive. People people will rush in order to meet a deadline, and they will release code that then harms everyone else on the team. It also harms the business that they're they're trying to support, the employers that they're trying to satisfy, or the customers they're trying to satisfy because it it changes the maintenance characteristics of the system to make it much more difficult to keep that system functioning and to well, modify it when it needs to be modified. It that's I mean, another it's a, level of harm. Yeah. It it how do I put it? It's an easy trap to fall into and it's not because it's quote unquote faster. It's because I can call it done and skip some steps. But yeah, you know, so you clip this you, you have it working, but you skip the cleanup step and that therefore it's harmful because somebody else has to deal with it. I'm also wondering if insecure code falls under this, right? If I don't take the right measures to write the security measures into this that I need to to protect the information of my users. Yeah, clearly that would be a case. And it, and it brings into question the uh, en- entire rationale behind SQL. SQL is a textual language that allows you unlimited access to the underlying underlying data store. Why would we permit anything like that in our systems? Since text can be brought in through the interface Mm -hmm. and and executed, why would we allow SQL into systems that require uh, require, uh, security? 
And I can't, I can't come up with a good answer to that question. That seems to me to be irresponsible. SQL itself should not, should not be in those systems. Or if it is, it should be so well buried behind firewalls that there's no way to get textual data from the outside world into a SQL statement. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious then, what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives are a good API. You don't need SQL for, a, for a accessing data. You just need a good API. And, a, and an API can't be transmitted in through the, uh, through the user interface. Just a nice sequence of function calls. This, by the way, yeah. was the original you know, relational database. SQL came along later. Early relational databases, you just had subroutines that you called, functions that you called to, uh, to query the data. And then SQL came along, and, and SQL came along as a way for users, not programmers, users to write reports, to query the data and write reports. And then somehow that got turned into a programming language that programmers now use on a regular basis and hide behind things like Hibernate. Wouldn't it be nice if Hibernate did not translate into SQL? but simply access the underlying data. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, yeah, if we had just other APIs where it's like, deliver this data into these columns. Yeah. Right? <laughs> because, yeah, that that because that's most of what I do. And then if I have to modify the the underlying structure, which is where you usually get into trouble or query data back out, then, you know, and get information that I shouldn't have, you know, then we can handle those cases behind the other APIs. Yes. And put the proper measures in front of it. Yes. And, you know, so, so that, I mean, it's kind of a sideline here, but it's, it's interesting to it's very interesting that if you had a, a set of ethics like I'm talking about here, uh-huh. equal would be in violation of that ethical standard. <laughs> okay, my brain's melting. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Right, because I've always written against database systems that use SQL. Of course, who hasn't? Everybody has since so, nineteen what seventy whatever. Yeah, dawn of time. Yeah, um, well, dawn of some people's time, anyway. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you say nineteen seventy something. I was only alive for the last two weeks or so of that. So <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting thing. But if there's not a better way to do it, do we just? not use those systems? I mean, is, is, you know, how far do we take this? Well, obviously you can't just suddenly wave your hands in the air and say, no more SQL ever. On the other hand, it's a, it's a reasonable thing to look at and say, okay, wait a minute. If we are going to promise not to do harm, what are the things that cause harm? SQL is clearly one of them. Mm-hmm. Now you could say it's misuse of SQL, but it's such an open gateway that it seems irresponsible to use it yeah. unless you've really, really buried it behind, you know, lots of firewalls. What other things are like that? What other aspects of software that we use on a regular basis could be considered harmful? I haven't compiled a list, but I think it'd be interesting to, to think that one through. Yeah, fair. Well, and it's interesting too, just from the standpoint of, you know, in that case, it's harmful because of the sort of the, the properties around it. But yeah, I mean, are we doing other things that are insecure or... Here, here's another one that, that I'm a little curious on. What about just legacy code? And I don't mean necessarily only legacy code under the definition that it doesn't have tests, but just aging code, right? 
that doesn't follow current practices, somebody else has to come in, you know, and if they haven't been around for the last year or two, they may look at it and go, why is this this way, right? And so then it's code that, that has roadblocks for them. Well, so, you know, how does code become legacy code? And, and if you don't want to use Michael Feather's definition, yeah. right, which was, you know, code without tests is legacy code. If you don't want to use that definition, then the more common definition is code that has gotten, code that has gotten behind. It is, it yeah. is um, full of structures that were left behind that never, never were cleaned up. You used the, the idea that, well, you know, we can, we can go fast by getting the code working and then not cleaning it up. And legacy mm-hmm. code would be a pile of all that stuff that was never cleaned up, built right. one on top of the next on top of the next. Clearly, that's harmful, right? Just the fact that yeah. this exists is harmful. It slows everybody down. It slows the whole team down. It costs the company and the employer and the customers tons of money because it becomes virtually impossible to make progress in a in a, a, a really messy code base. That's harm. Or, you know, well, I'm just talking about, you know, it was written in Rails or React or something. <laughs> current, current, current minus one, right? So current minus one is not the current way people do it. I was trained on the current version. Therefore, I'm going to run into stuff that I didn't expect. Well, that gets into another aspect of harm, uh, which is kind of the opposite of that. Is it harmful to introduce new frameworks that don't, give you any new capabilities. Oh, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) So I am still very connected to the Ruby community. And a lot of people feel this way about the front-end frameworks. It adds a bunch of complexity. And I'm not convinced that it adds enough complexity to justify what it's supposed to solve. So, and this, by the way, this happens in in more than just the Ruby community, right? It's everywhere. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Framework of the Month Club is a very active community. Well, even within the framework communities, I mean, we do shows on Angular, React, and Vue. And I think React is where I see most of the discussion around this. But, you know, they'll introduce a new feature. Um, Another one that's currently hotly contested in the iOS community is SwiftUI, right? It's, okay, they introduce SwiftUI, they encourage us all to use it. And then a bunch of people are coming in and saying, it's not ready yet for what I need it for. In other words, it... (laughs) it adds more problems to my solution set than it does solutions. Like it solves some problems, but not enough of them to make it worth using. So that's, that's an interesting one, right? You, that's the, uh, the framework that gets introduced too early and causes more problems than it's, than it's worth. But, but back off of that a little bit, why did Apple introduce Swift? What benefit was that? There are great languages out there. Why did they have to invent a new one? <laughs> Why did Google have to invent Go? It's a great language. You know, Go is a great language. Why did they have to do that? What was the benefit that, that, that we got? Uh, let's from, why let's is go for the trifecta. Putting out Kotlin. Face, <laughs> Facebook uh, gave us ReasonML. I, I don't know I'm about ReasonML. I, you know, I haven't followed what Facebook did. But, but the, um, I mean, the underlying question there is, are we getting... Yeah. Benefit or harm from new languages, from new frameworks. Fair. Right. And and if they're providing some kind of new higher level of technology, mm-hmm. then yeah, I think we'd be getting benefit from them. But I haven't seen a new level of technology and software for probably 30 years. 
So I'm, I'm uh, very cynical about whether or not this is really beneficial and whether or not it's just a way to keep stirring this pot that nobody wants to stop stirring. Yeah, at the same time, though, I mean, a lot of these languages, while they don't necessarily radically advance the state of the art, right? They just present a different way of doing the same thing. And so it's, well, this might be better in this case. And, you know, the trade-offs are there. But I don't think it's harmful to use those languages. So, you know, going back to point number one, why did Google have to produce Go? I don't know. Is it harmful to produce code in Go as opposed to something else that already existed? No, if the company wants to use Go yeah. and they commit to Go, I, that doesn't seem yeah. harmful. On the other hand, what if, what if you've got a company that's dedicated to Java, they've got a lot of Java code, and then one of the programmers says, I'm doing this next thing in Go. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's a different sudden, issue, right? Go, right. And then right. the next programmer says, well, I'm using Python. Yeah. And now you've got this you know, Tower of Babel that the company doesn't really understand, doesn't know that this is happening. And you've got programmer A doing mm-hmm. one and programmer B doing the next thing. And it, and it all goes That crazy. creates, yeah. Those, that and then creates they all issues. quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so at what level of harmful is harmful? I mean, how do you measure this, right? Because there may be trade-offs, right, for what I'm doing to where it's, it's not necessarily poorly maintained or hard to maintain. But, you know, there's a trade-off between performance and maintainability. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, it goes back to the, the, pre- the, the preface here. You know, I promise that to the best of my ability and judgment. Right. So I know a, a group of programmers that did switch to Go, uh, and it was absolutely the right choice for them. They were using .NET before, uh, and they switched to Go, and they managed to cut their, uh, the number of servers in their, in their server farm down by a factor of 10, yep. <laughs> just because the language is so much more efficient. Uh, and they're they're very happy with their choice, and it's a, it's a nice homogenous team of people, and they're all dedicated to it. Works fine, right? So, yep. I don't want to attack Go. I don't want to attack any particular language, but it's important for us as programmers to look at our choices and see if those choices are harmful, even though they might be titillating. They might be exciting. Ooh, the next framework. Ooh, the next language. I should oh, do that. Man. I when do you're bringing into that, that into trap. an existing environment, that can be harmful. Yeah. The, this thing looks cool, so I'm going to try it out on this project. And then it turns out to be a long-maintained thing, even though everything else is written in something else. And so now you have a maintenance burden that people aren't as qualified to fill. Yes. Right. I've never done that. <laughs> no, me neither. I've never did that. No. Uh-uh. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, fair Wait. enough. By the way, if you want to hear about the company that did make that .NET to go switch, um, I interviewed uh, Jonathan Oliver and Michael Wat- Watcut from. Yeah, that's those are the ones, right? On this show, so th- those will be out before this one comes out. So okay, good. Yeah, Smarty Streets, great, yep. great, great bunch of guys. Wow. Uh, and there's a whole um, there's a whole series on cleancoders.com about Go and yep. the way they've used it. And so, yep, I had the benefit of driving over to a restaurant and interviewing him in person. So before we were all self sheltering and, and yes, exactly. But they're 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 local. They're 20 minutes away. So oh, are you uh, are you in the uh, in Utah? Yep, I probably knew that. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to number two. I, I think we've kind of hashed through that and, and given some people some idea of what we mean by harmful. And I really do like, you know, you keep coming back to to the best of my ability and judgment. So yeah, you know, strip away what you want 
to do and just dive into what you really ought to do to avoid writing harmful code. Yeah, it's just a matter of thinking things through and, and you know, making sure you're not harming someone or something in, by your behavior. All right, so point two. And again, we preface it with, you know, I promise that to the best of my ability and judgment, colon, the code that I produce will always be my best work. I will not knowingly allow code that is defective, either in behavior or structure, to accumulate. Now, I worded that one very carefully. First of all, the code that I produce will always be my best work. How could anyone, how could anyone disagree with that statement? You would always do your best work, no matter what. Now, you know, sometimes you, you'll look at it two months later and think, well, that wasn't my best work, but maybe it was the best work you could do at the time. I like this because I'm never doing another death march again. <laughs> oh, that, is that not what you meant? <laughs> it's unethical. <laughs> it is because right? I'm Wait. sorry if I've worked 12 hours today I'm not doing my best work oh hey listen uh, learn how to fly <laughs> and then and then you know you you look at the airplane and think boy I've got a mission today and I haven't had enough sleep you're not getting in that plane <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it puts a whole different um, stakes whole are a different shading there. on things yeah. right and I, my airplane I, I own a nice little airplane I get into it I turn on the screens, and one of the first things on the screen is, how are you feeling today? Have you had enough <laughs> rest, right? Have you had enough food? Have you had any alcohol? <laughs> Those are questions that actually come up on the screen in my airplane before I can fly it. Oh, wow. uh, and that, that goes to this as well. You know, The code that I produce will always be my best work. All right. I was at a conference. When was this? This is probably a Ruby conference in 08 or, or 09, something like that. And, and one of the speakers was talking about all this code that he had written after coming back from the bar and he was completely hammered. And I, I got up. I, was, I came after him. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> I got up on stage and I said, I've got a new rule for programmers, and it's the same rule that pilots use. Don't write code within eight hours of taking any alcohol at all. I was oh, astounded wow. that he would actually get up there and talk about all this code that he had written when he was hammered. It couldn't possibly be his best work. No, no way. Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript. And that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. And then the, the, the statement goes on, I will not knowingly allow code that is defective either in behavior or structure to accumulate. And we're going to have to unpack this a lot. So the knowingly word, that's important because mm -hmm. we are going to commit code that is defective in behavior and structure because we're not perfect beings. We're not angels, but we will not do it so. knowingly. Now that's a tough one, right? Because you've got a deadline, you've got pressure, you've got peer pressure and, and pressure from, from managers and everybody else, and you've got a module that sort of works, works in most cases, and... Works you, on my machine. 
Can you commit it? About 30 years ago, I was working on a team and it was a startup. And you know how startups are, right? Mm-hmm. Every day is the last possible day of, of survival. <laughs> Everyone has to be working 12, 13, 14 hours. It's just a, it's an absurd environment, right? And, and by mm-hmm. the way, no, no startup should work that way. They'd go much faster if they slowed down. But there we were. We were in this startup environment. And uh, one of the guys writing code in C has the most critical module, right? The fundamental right. data analysis module. And I remember reading his code, oh, a few weeks after he committed it. And in a comment in this code, it said, if these certain circumstances occur, he defined what those circumstances were. So if these circumstances occur, there will be ugliness. And that was the end of the comment. (laughs) And so I thought, now that was knowingly committing code that was defective in behavior. And he knew it was defective in behavior, and he put it in the comment. This is not going to work under these circumstances. Now, that seems to me to be unethical. At this point in time, it seems to me that that would be unethical. Unethical. Unless you've got some way to make sure that those circumstances never occur, then you are simply putting code in that you know will fail. Right. Right? So that's that's one. And the second half of that statement was... Defective in structure, not just behavior, but in structure. And code that's defective in structure is code that is not, does not afford the ability to change it easily. Okay. It is, uh, you know, tangled, it's messy, it's mm-hmm. through different modules, all the old, old techniques. And to knowingly release code of defective structure is, again, that goes back to the harm thing. It harms everyone else. So this is a promise that says, okay, I'm not going to, and here's the key to it, I'm not going to allow this to accumulate. That doesn't mean you won't ever commit it. It means you won't allow it to stay committed for long. If you're in the middle of a production emergency, you're going to break all these rules, right? For 30 minutes or for 60 minutes, you're going to break all these rules, but you will not allow this all this defective stuff to accumulate, which means that you will go back and fix it, not just later, right away. Okay. How many times have you had a, a, or seen a, a production fix last for a year or two? <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back and fix it someday, maybe. Sure, yeah, we'll go back and fix it. <laughs> it's on our list. It's in the backlog. You see this sometimes happen when um, people have a continuous build environment and one of the tests starts to break and it's annoying and everybody knows why it's breaking and everybody kind of goes, oh yeah, that's that thing over there. We're going to go fix that. But it's annoying to have it break because it sends email to everybody on the team every time the continuous build runs and somebody finally says, can we just turn that test off? And they pull the test out of the test suite and then it's forgotten. (laughs) Oh, now the test suite is passing again. And no one ever goes back to put it in and no one goes to fix the problem. Same kind of issue. So when you talk about not allowing it to accumulate, that's the other thing I'm wondering about is what if it's already there? (laughs) Well, it's accumulated, hasn't it? Yes. (laughs) So that puts um, an ethical pressure on programmers to unaccumulate those defects. Now, you have to do that over time. 
You have to do that. Uh, you can't just go in there and immediately remove everything that's bad. On the other hand, you also cannot tolerate its, you cannot tolerate its growth. You cannot even tolerate its continued existence. So long as you are yeah. doing something to mitigate it, something to diminish it, then you're mm -hmm. behaving ethically. So this gets back to the Boy Scout rule, right? Every time you check the code in, you check it. Every time you check it in, you check it in a little cleaner than when you checked it out. And that would, that would satisfy that accumulation part of point number two. <laughs> yep. What's the opposite of accumulation? Um, unaccumulation. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I can't I, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, we're working toward... I mean, this this is a battle too that I think no matter who you are, you're just you're going to wind up in a position where you're fighting this for basically the rest of that code base. I, you especially if it's an old horrible legacy code base, right? It's yeah. going to take a very long time. Even if you've kept to all the rules and everything is is clean and and beautiful and and you've got all the tests and you've refactored left and right, you still have to be looking at the code base and checking it in a little cleaner than you checked it out. Right. right? You can't let anything, you can't let the defects accumulate. You cannot ethically allow the defects to, to accumulate. And by the way, who, who is harmed by the accumulation of those defects? Why is this an ethical issue? And, and the answer is that, uh, first of all, all the, all the programmers are harmed, but the business is harmed and the users are harmed. Mm -hmm. Because it makes it very difficult to maintain that system the way that everyone expects it ought to be maintained. Yeah. Well, and this is one thing that I've seen is that a lot of people, especially you, you brought up startups, right? So we're in there and we're working furiously on this code. And initially, it's real easy to add features, right? It's like, oh, we need this new feature. Well, there's not a whole lot there that it's going to impact. You know, if I have to tie it into something else, it's probably one or two little things, no big deal. But after a while, the the whole thing just slows way down. And that's what we're talking about here is that if you did this from the start, you could mitigate a lot of that wasted time, effort, and energy. And if you're getting into a code base that has to be maintained down the line, what you're doing is you're removing a lot of the things that make this slow down in, in the first place. So it's harming the company you're working for because it's slowing everybody down and they have to pay those salaries for people who aren't getting as much done just due to the nature of the code, right? Not because they're bad programmers or anything like that. It's affecting the people who have to work on it because it's frustrating. It's hard. It's not as much fun. It's much more fun to go in and add some new slapdash whiz-bang offering in there and, and make it work, right? And, and then because it takes longer to add features, the company may not be able to respond as quickly to customer requests. And so they may not be as profitable and on and on and on. It affects everybody. It Have affects you ever seen a tractor pull? Mm. It's a competition that they often do at rodeos and uh, county fairs. And all the farmers bring their great big tractors out, these monster tractors that have lots of power. And they, sounds like put, fun. they put them in front of this, this um, big weight. <laughs> and they, they have to pull this weight. And the weight is on a ramp, and, and in, initially the weight starts out very far behind, uh, but then as the tractor moves forward, it pulls the weight over the wheels, and it gets uh -huh. harder and harder and harder for the tractor to make progress. So the, the winner is the guy who can pull this 
tractor, this weighted tread the farthest. And it's very similar to this, this problem of allowing defects to accumulate. Every new defect makes it harder and harder and harder until finally you stop dead. No matter how much power you have in your programming team, you simply cannot make progress anymore. Yep. Now, point number three is going to be a little more interesting, a little more controversial. Point number three says, and once again, the preface, right? I promise that to the best of my ability and judgment, colon, <laughs> I will produce with each release a quick, sure, and repeatable proof that every element of the code works as it should. No, I've had so many arguments with people about this. It doesn't say test in there. It does not. It does not say, the word test does not appear. Yeah. A quick, sure, and repeatable proof. Now, I wrote it that way. Because I, I wanted to put myself in the position of a customer. And what would the cu- customer who's paying a lot of money for this software, and how does the customer know that the product they're buying from the software developers, yeah, how do they know that it actually does what they're paying to get? And it seems to me that any customer would want a quick, sure, and repeatable proof that the system does what it's supposed to do. Certainly, if you buy a car from somebody, you want a quick, sure, and repeatable proof that you can that that's a good car. And by the way, normally people do that by doing a test drive of some kind. But it's the same with every customer. It's the same with every manager. And I thought, what a reasonable thing to expect. It's a perfectly reasonable thing for a customer to expect that you can prove that what you've done works. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's interesting. When I was freelance, I had at least two customers, clients, that told me they didn't want to pay me to write tests. But I wanted to make sure it works. So, dot, get ignore. <laughs> <laughs> had the test folder removed. Well, so, I mean, the m- mistake you made was to tell them that you were writing tests, I suppose. But yes, you, you want to make sure. Now, and I told them that too. I'm like, don't you want me to make sure that it works? Uh, you know. <laughs> now just write the code several years ago this was probably 30 years ago um well maybe 25 i i worked on a a very large system i was running a small company Mm -hmm. and we got hired by um a, 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 a firm out east to write a very significant system for them and what we did is we said all right here's how this is going to work and we 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 created this financial model they would pay us time and materials uh-huh. at a very low rate. Right. We called it the run rate. And it was mm-hmm. about half what we wanted. And then they would pay us for every deliverable. And we would, um, we had, I think it was 36 different deliverables. And they would, they would pay us on delivery. However, they paid us once the acceptance tests that they had written Past. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> no, I really like it. We gave you what you said you wanted. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, And they wrote the tests that proved that it did what they wanted. And once those tests pass, they would pay us. Now, it has a whole bunch of very interesting benefits, this, this model, because it's, it's bad for the programming team if uh-huh. we don't deliver frequently. 
because we're living at this run rate that is barely sustainable. So we, the programming team, really want to get those deliveries out. We are highly incented to right. deliver these things. The, the customer, on the other hand, is paying relatively little until they get a delivery. Right. So it's a, a very interesting share the risk kind of model. And both of us are very focused, both, both we and the customer are very focused on those acceptance tests. Mm-hmm. They define them, and that's how we know what we have to do. They execute them, and that's when they know they have to pay. Right. And it's very clear if anybody breaches that agreement. That seems to me to be an ethical way to work a development a development uh, task. Yeah, I agree. And I really, really just, I, I love the, how do I put it? I mean, yeah, you, you know it works, right? Uh, I've never had a client, customer, or employer that provided me acceptance tests. <laughs> well, did they have a financial incentive to do so? No. <laughs> ah, these guys did. Uh, so it worked out very well for us. Um, and this was long before automated anything, right? Mm-hmm. So their acceptance tests were manual, right? but it was still really, really valuable. And they had to go through and actually figure out everything that it needed to do and specify it in some kind of testable way. And then they had to execute those tests. So it worked out quite well for us. This was long before Agile. This was long before extreme programming. But it set the, it set the mode for me when I saw extreme programming about a decade later. I thought, oh, yeah, that's really similar to what we did in this one project. This whole idea of testing first and, and, and doing things in small releases, that really kind of set the stage for me. So it was a, a gateway into extreme programming and into the whole agile thing. Yep, absolutely. Now, how could you do this third promise without a discipline like test-driven development? Well, yeah, that, that's kind of where I went to begin with. I was like, okay, you didn't say tests. <laughs> I didn't. And some people really hate the idea of tests. Okay. It, it seems like some people have accepted you know, many people that I talk to have accepted the fact that they're going to want some form of testing just to make sure that, yeah, that stuff works and that they can verify it in a reliable way. But... Well, what if somebody could come up with a quick, repeatable proof, reliable proof, and it didn't have to do with tests? Or it didn't, it wasn't test-driven development. So for example, Kent Beck's got this new idea. You've probably heard of it. Let's see if I remember it. Commit, test, retract something like i can't i can't remember what it is yeah i talked to a i talked to the smarty street guys about this and it was yeah it was something test and or commit oh yeah test retract or commit something yeah, like something that. like that yes so you have to write you have to write a test but you don't have to write it first right in test driven development you have to write it first you have to write a test you don't have to write it first but as soon as you commit if the test fails you retract all the code you just wrote Yep. <laughs> so you have yep. to work really, That's really small steps, you know, really yeah. small. And it doesn't matter if you write the test or the code first. It just has to be very small and it has to pass. And and you only get one shot, right? You type you type a little code, a little test, you yep. come oh, I screwed it up and it deletes everything, right? <laughs> have to do it over yep. again. Now, okay, that's a perfectly reasonable alternate mode to create a test suite. Is there some other technique for creating a repeatable set of proofs? 
maybe there is, you know, maybe there's some logic language that you can, you can specify the system in and the logic yeah. line somehow exercises the system. I don't know, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to fill a test. <laughs> I'm sorry. All it requirements are tests, right? Yeah. All requirements are tests. No way to, yeah. there's no way to separate them. Uh, but I didn't, in this oath, I didn't want to mention test-driven development because there might be a better way or there might be a different way. But the idea of a quick, sure, and repeatable proof, I think is a reasonable way to state that. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, number four. It's funny because the first three, I'm just like, you know, yeah, I, I get it. And I think people kind of get where you're coming from with these. Uh, number four, I think you're, you're going <laughs> to, you might have a little bit more pushback from people. And, and that's the, I will make frequent small releases so that I do not impede the progress of others. Ah, yes. Okay. So I put this one in there because it seems to me to be unethical to work on a team and to check out a module and keep it checked out for a month and then expect everybody mm-hmm. else to have to deal with the merge. Yep. I have, I have a nightmare story for this one. <laughs> so um, at one point, there was a company and they were trying to do, how do I put it? So they, they were doing like uh, rent to own, but it was online. And, you know, so we were building the whole system that financed that. And they got partway through um, the first stage. And I just realized there's no way we're going to make it through all nine in one episode. Yeah, <laughs> so I have, have to do a part two. Thinking, hey, we're going to have to do this in three episodes. <laughs> but anyway, so then they decided, well, we'll speed this up. We'll have a team working on phase two while we're finishing phase one. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, so I'm talking to these guys and I'm going, I'm cause phase one was already in motion and I knew the team lead on phase one. And I said, guys, this is a really terrible idea unless you can guarantee me that the overlap on any of the core classes, this was all in Ruby on rails you know, is going to be minimal. Other, you know, so we're working on our code and they're working on their code. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not going to, you know. And uh, I'm like, okay. I'm like, this is the class that I'm worried about, right? This is the one class, the one model in Rails that I'm thinking there's going to be some overlap. And they're like, okay, well, we'll make sure that the phase one team is in lockstep with you guys so that this isn't a problem. The idea was is that we would get their code as they were working on it and that way we could just adapt to those small changes, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So yeah, about a month in, we get this overhauled version of the class <laughs> all at once, right? They merged their branch. <laughs> yeah. One of their developers merged the branch. Yeah. And all of our stuff that was, com- depending on those APIs, just, you know, all our tests failed. You know, none of our code worked. I mean, it was a, disaster. And uh, yeah, I mean, we were promised that A, we would work with those small frequent changes and that there would be communication. And it turned out that both of those things failed. And so that's where we wound up. So I I look at that as a breach of ethics. Yeah. And I look at it as a breach of ethics because it impedes everyone else. It makes you go faster. If If you're the one who's got this stuff checked out and you're just hacking away at it. Right. You get to go faster, but you're going to slow everybody else down when, once you release your wonderful new work. 
And the only way to make sure that the team continues to make progress in a in a reasonable way is mm-hmm. very frequent check-ins to the main line. Right. Real frequent check-ins to the main line. That may mean that you have to have feature switches or toggles or something like that. But to hold these things out for long periods of time is going to be a nightmare for the team later on. So it seems to me that's an, actually an issue of ethics. I agree. Well, you're an easy guy. Well, <laughs> I've had this pain, right? Yeah, I've no, I've no. seen this firsthand. And it it, you know, it took three or four of us literally an extra week to do that work. And the client wasn't happy either. No, uh, really. <laughs> right? Because yeah. they paid for all this work, but what's all and, this extra work? What? Yeah. 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 So yeah, hundred percent there. This is a tricky one though, because it's also hard to get people to buy into this, especially since a lot of companies work on the idea that I will fork the branch and Git, I will work on it until my feature is done, and then I will go through Merge Hell. Yes. So, yes. so how do you convince people that's a terrible idea? Uh, you, just state it as, you state it as an ethical uh, imperative. <laughs> that's my solution. It is now an ethical imperative not to do that. You see a lot of... Um, of the uh, agile and the large uh, frameworks mm-hmm. out there, and they have this notion of uh, the trains. Have you ever seen that? Mm-hmm. I think one of them is safe. Is safe one? I don't know. I can't remember all the agile and the large things. But they have these notions of trains, and trains are like major releases, and there are there are parallel tracks with all these trains on them, but they're all you know a month behind each other, right. and the programmers have to get their features ready to load them on the train as the train goes by. I don't know if I've said that very well, but you could be working on multiple features. You just have to work several several months staggered because these trains uh-huh. are going to be several months staggered. Right. And it seems to me that's a breach of this idea that that having, you know, teams working on features that are staggered like that necessitates these horrible merges and these horrible blockages at some point. Now, maybe I've got that wrong a little bit. Right. But I, I certainly don't want to see people holding their code out for weeks or months and then causing these, um, these big blockages to occur as we have to do the major merge, which never works right. <laughs> yep. So, my, I mean, my solution, if I had my druthers, is I would just grab the person who's saying we're going to work this way. And I'd be like, okay, when I tell you, you have to come sit by me for like three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do the merge, man. Yeah. All right, we're going to pair program this sucker. Well, I'm not a programmer. I'll walk you through it. <laughs> hmm, maybe we should make these smaller so that the merge, you know, because you, you are going to have conflicts. There's no way to avoid it. But if there's small changes, then it's really easy to look at it and say, okay, there are three spots that conflicted. And I know what what these mean. Or maybe there's one of them that it's it's unclear. So then I go talk to the person that Git Blame tells me wrote the other line of code because they changed it not too long before I did and I haven't seen it yet. But then I can go and I can handle it without seeing massive, dealing with the massive implications for the whole system. Right. If you've just got a couple of conflicts, they're fairly straightforward to fix. If yeah. you're checking in every hour, you will have very few conflicts. That's and the true. conflicts you do have happened in the last hour, right? That's true. <laughs> so you probably <laughs> know exactly what's going on. 
especially if I you like had that. kind of a stand-up meeting that morning and you knew what everybody was working on. Yep. Well, I think we should probably just uh, wrap it up here and then schedule another one for like next week and yeah. finish this up. Sure. Or, you know, if if we argue heatedly over five or seven or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, yeah. So I guess I guess uh, one thing that I do want to ask on number four, since we're still on it for a second, is how do you feel then about branch-based versus trunk-based development? Trunk-based development. Uh, you know, bring it back into the main line. Bring it back in all the time. Use feature toggles. You know, let's yeah. not keep things out for really long periods of time because uh, it's a nightmare. Yep. You know, now are there exceptions to that rule? Yeah, sure. If, if some guy is, is going to be working on a part of the code that nobody else is going to touch, uh, then you might be able to safely let, let them work alone for you know a week or two or three, and then do the merge, and the merge will be a, a simple thing. Yeah, but, you seen. know, active development in the in the main trunk where everybody's you know plotting along in the same modules that you want to bring that back in really frequently. So one thing that I've seen that people do though is they generally they either keep their branches extremely short lived or they do trunk based, but then they've got like. In Rails apps, for example, it's like, okay, we're on Rails 5.2. Rails 6.0 is now stable and released. You know, it's been, you know, people have been shaking it down for the last couple of months and any bugs have kind of come out of it. We want to upgrade. And so they'll make an upgrade branch. And then somebody will work the upgrade for a few weeks. Do you still think that should be done in the branch and just have everybody go in and hammer it out until it's done? Or No, I understand that, that one. That, and that one seems to be a... a to me to be a reasonable way to proceed because you have to touch virtually the entire Everything. code base. Yeah. But you're doing it in an extremely disciplined and organized way. There are very, right. very, uh, a set of obvious things that need to be done. It's always the same thing. Right. So then you can sweep through and somebody can spend a week or a week and a half on the conversion branch. And then you'll have a little bit of a merge because, you know, some folks will have done the wrong thing during that week. Yeah, that makes sense. But then again, you do that in uh, uh, making sure that you're not putting in uh, behaviorally or structurally defective code. Oh, yes. And you make sure that the tests or you know, however you're proving your code still works, you make sure that that's all functioning as desired as well so that you know that, hey, I didn't break anything when I upgraded this sucker. I like it. All right. So far, so good. <laughs> so far, so good. All right. So uh, I guess the last question I have, I'm going to keep you an extra five minutes unless you have something to get to right nope, away. Nope, I'm loose. So how are you keeping sane during the quarantine thing? I, I just, you know, I'm looking for some ideas for folks if they pick this up over the next week or two. Well, it's, it's, it's easier for me because my, my days are not that different from, how, from what they used to be. Right. Uh, I work from my office at home. I spend a lot of time writing and coding. And so about half the time I can pretend there's nothing wrong. Right. My, uh, my revenue streams are not really, well, they're not significantly challenged because mm -hmm. I can't travel anymore. I can't do um, classes, you know, collected. I can't go overseas. So that's one revenue stream that's kind of dried up, but you know, I can, I can survive. Uh, I, I can survive pretty well. So I'm not too worried about that. My daughter has uh, moved moved up from Baton Rouge with her two kids <laughs> while her husband stays down there to work at the plant he works at. Uh, so I've got a couple of grandkids running around the house. That's a joy. So how, you know, how could I possibly complain <laughs> about that? 
we still take nice long walks. We walk the dogs. You know, we wave to our neighbors. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's much friendlier when you have to stay six feet away from them. <laughs> that's true. And a wave and, okay, nice to see you again. And that, that's kind of that. Um, Keep your dogs six feet away from their dogs. Well, so far, that's not a guideline. I know. (laughs) But so far, no. We still go to the store. We're careful about stores. We don't go very often, but we'll plan a trip and we take our wipes with us and our gloves. Haven't gone to the masks yet, but that's probably going to happen. And then about once every, well, 10 days or so, I managed to crawl into my airplane and fly it around the sky and look down at the world. And it seems normal down there. And that, that helps me stay sane. Sounds good. About it. Okay. One more thing I want to ask about. So we're we we have our videos on. I'm only releasing the audio, but we have our videos on, and I can see behind Bob a flight simulator, and that just looks fun. So if I want to set that up for Chuck, you oh. know, how do what what recommendations do you have as far as what I buy? Um, you know, what software, what hardware? So I'm using a software called Xplane. Uh-huh. I think it's X, X-Plane 11 or X-Plane 10. I can't remember what the version number is, but it's the latest version of X-Plane. It's tremendous. It's absolutely tremendous. It has you know geographic and city databases for the entire world. X-Plane 11. United States. But you know, if I fly over a city, the city is there. Some of the buildings are even there. Not all of them, but some of them. If I fly to an airport, the airport is there. It's the right airport. It has the right runways. Uh, it's, 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 it's very, very good. The, um, the physics models are terrific. Uh, I like to fly, I own a, a Cirrus SR22. So I, I like to fly that and the, uh, the simulator does a very good job with that. I have three screens set up so I can look out the front window and the two side windows. That's very mm-hmm. important when you're actually trying to land an airplane. So you, you want to be able to look to the right and look to the left and see if you've got the runway lined up properly. It takes a a lot of computer power. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right? Because you want to keep a thirty, uh, you know, a, th- a thirty frames per second frame rate going. Right. So it takes a lot of computer power. A really good graphics card. So I bought a special purpose uh, processor uh, from the folks. The, the X Plane people recommend one. So I bought. Mm-hmm. I didn't buy the top of the line one that was water cooled. I didn't buy the water cooled one. I did buy the one down from that, and it's just great. I mean, the way it the way it models weather mm-hmm. uh, and storms and rain and snow and clouds and uh, it's it's very very good. The sun moves across the sky at the right speed. You know, it knows where you are on the planet, so you can do day trips and night trips, and you can set it up to uh, automatically get the weather, the real weather. So as you're flying along, you're flying along in the real weather you would be flying along in, the real time you would be flying. So it's very, very useful. Very useful. If you're a pilot and you want, you know, you need a way to practice because you can't practice right now because you're locked down. Uh, It's just great for that. And then you get good, good controls. Uh, and there's there's folks that have made very good controls. Um, the the yoke, the rudders, the radios, the autopilot, and then you get a tool called uh, ForeFlight that runs on your iPad, and that gives you a, a map. It shows you exactly where you are on the planet. It shows you all the airports. It shows you your flight path. Nothing could be better. I can sit there for an hour and just fly my imaginary airplane anywhere I want to fly it. Nice. 
So uh, if you're the only pilot in an airplane, I have to ask this. And yeah, it's just because I'm, I'm 12. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have to use the restroom and you're flying and you're the only person flying, do you just hold it or what? Yeah, that's a problem sometimes. So, you know, you first of all, you practice disciplined bladder control. Fair enough. You know, you don't bring fluids with you. You don't drink a whole Diet Coke before you get into the into the cockpit. So you're thinking about that before you climb in. I got you. Give yourself about three hours, right? And the airplane is going to need to be refueled about then. So oh, I got gotcha. you. You try and plan your fuel stops with your... um with your bladder breaks. And then in emergencies, there are these little things that you can get. And, you know, they roll up into a little, nice little tight thing and you can undo them. And they're essentially, they have the same stuff in them that diapers have in them. That oh, turns you. into gel, uh-huh. right? So you go, you go in them and then you fold them up and throw them out when you land. I haven't yeah. had to do that yet, by the way. My, my bladder control has been pretty good. I expect, however, that when I have certain passengers, I might have to let them use them. Because if if a passenger says, I have to go and I have to go now, there's just no way to do that. There's no freeway on-ramp with a flying yeah. jelly that you can stop at. It's going to be 15, 20 minutes before I can get the plane on the ground into a place where there's a bathroom. So, right. And so you let everybody know. Okay. When you fly, fly with children. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah, if they're four or five and they're not in diapers, be prepared. Yeah, yeah makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I asked the question. It's my yeah. fault, but there you we have did. it, folks. We went there. <laughs> All right. Well, um, anything new or interesting you're doing these days that you want to let people know about before we wrap up? I'm writing a new book, and it's uh, uh, Clean Craftsmanship. It's all about the technical disciplines of mm-hmm. writing clean code, whereas clean code was about the code itself. This is about the disciplines, the technical disciplines of writing clean code, essentially the agile technical disciplines. Yep. And then the book after that is going to be The Programmer's Oath. So we're, uh, we're previewing that now. Nice. All right. And, and I'm assuming that some of that will be up on your blog. when. Oh, yes. Ready. All of that will be blogged and talked about. So, yeah, blog.cleancoder.com. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll let you go. I kept you over seven minutes, but yeah, I'm always curious. And man, the flight simulator looks fun. I would love to learn to fly an airplane. Well, that can be done. <laughs> well, if I crash the simulator, then I go, can I try that again? <laughs> yeah. you can, And the pause button works too. Yeah. doesn't work in the airplane. You, there are times when you really want one too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday I was flying and, and my, my number one radio went out, or I think it did. Hmm. I think it went out because I had some kind of problem with it. And I'm sitting there waiting for air traffic control to talk to me and nobody's talking to me. I finally realize I've got another radio. So I use that uh, and I tell them. And, but for that moment when you're thinking, okay, something's gone wrong. And you think, okay, how do I push the pause button? And there is, <laughs> there is right. a yeah. Good deal. All right. Well, let's get on the schedule and we'll uh, do a part two here soon. Okay. We'll see you then. Yep. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.